This is week number 57 in our study of the Gospel of John. And last week we uh, opened up chapter 11, and, and as we've talked about, this is a somewhat narrative passage. So we move fairly quickly, but didn't get as far as I thought we would. We got, you remember this opens up with Jesus being a distance from Jerusalem. He, uh, in the previous passage, we end chapter 10, where the Jews are picking up stones to stone him out on the portico of Solomon, adjacent to the temple, and Jesus miraculously escapes from them, and he and all the disciples cross the Jordan and go into uh, the land where John was first baptizing, which is near Bethany, beyond the Jordan. So Christ is half a day, day's journey outside of Jerusalem, <clears throat> really in a region that's not considered part of Judea, and he's there. Um, because the Jews want to kill him, and it's not quite that time yet. And so while he's there, word comes to him that Lazarus is sick. Lazarus being the brother of uh, Mary and Martha. This family we see uh, only a couple of times in Scripture, but it's very clear that Jesus is very close to this family. Uh, matter of fact, when they tell him that Lazarus is sick, they describe him as the one whom you love. And so there's this <clears throat> unique relationship that, um, Christ has with this family that's deeper than many of the ones that we see in other areas of Scripture. And so, uh, to our surprise, Jesus decides, um, that's fine, Lazarus is sick, I'll just stay here for two more days. And of course, he then tells his disciples, let's go to um, Judea and go see Lazarus. And they say, are you crazy? And Doubting Thomas says, um, don't you remember they just picked up stones and wanted to kill you? And so Jesus says, nevertheless, we're going um, to go see Lazarus um, because he's fallen asleep. And they speak back and say, well, if he's asleep, then he'll get better. And he then plainly tells them, but Lazarus is dead. And so Christ knew that. He planned that. He tarried so Lazarus could die. And so then uh, they do go back to the village of Bethany, which uh, you remember we described as being uh, near to Jerusalem, two miles uh, the scripture interpret, uh, interprets it as we did a little more study, 15 stadia, actually 1.72 miles. You remember, we calculated that out. And so um, it's close to two miles, but 1.72, you have that written in the margins of your Bible, right? Okay, because that's the accurate number. Okay, so we, that's where Jesus was at the end of last week. Um, he's just getting to the village. And so um, one of you last week asked, um, you remember, uh, chapter 11 has at the very beginning when uh, John is introducing us to who um, Mary and Martha are and Lazarus that um, he described Mary in verse 2 of chapter 11 as the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother is Lazarus was sick. And that event is over in um, chapter 12 where in verses uh, 3 and following you can see that Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance and then the disciples, mainly Judas, somewhat rebuke her um, and the Lord says, leave her alone for she has anointed me for death. Um, she didn't know that, that that's what she was doing. She did it as an act of, uh, of love for Christ but she, Christ took it as his anointing for death. And so one of you asked a question, because over in Luke chapter 7, there is a, another event, Luke chapter 7, and uh, verse 36, where he says, Now one of the Pharisees was questioning him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So very similar to the event that we see over in um, John chapter 12 <clears throat> that John references in chapter 11. And so the question, right, the question is, are these the same event? It's a legitimate question because there are some uh, similarities between these two. Um, if you go over and you read Matthew's account, uh, I believe it's in Matthew 14, and then Mark also has an account of this uh, Mary wiping the feet of Jesus that John mentions, and you'll find out that it's in Simon's house. 
And when Simon questions or in his heart questions Jesus about why are you letting the sinner wipe your feet, Jesus, knowing that, speaks to the Pharisee and calls him Simon. So they're both in Simon's house. Okay, not only that, both of the... Um, actually, many people believe that Luke writes that it was Mary who um, Mary Magdalene who cleaned Jesus' feet in the Pharisee's house, but actually Luke never names her. And she's not named anywhere in Scripture. Um, clearly the one in um, John chapter 12 is Mary. And so um, then there's another similarity in that they both uh, anoint his feet and they wipe his feet with their hair. Okay, so not a common event, right? Certainly something that would be unique for Jesus Christ. And so um, there are these similarities between these two things. If you read a little more, I think you'll see clearly that these are two separate events. And the reason I say that is because the man named Simon over in John's uh, presentation, it's actually not in John, but it's in Matthew and Mark, is in the house of Simon the leper. Okay? The account in Luke chapter 7 is in Simon the Pharisee's house. And clearly, if you were a leper, you could not be a Pharisee. Okay? So they're not the same man. Um, Probably greater than that, um, Luke describes that the woman in his account um, washed Jesus' feet because she was crying and the tears of her face wet his feet so she could then wash his feet before she anointed them with the perfume. There's no mention of that in Matthew, Mark, or John's account that Mary used her tears to wash his feet. So she apparently was not crying. So what I believe you have in Luke is you have a repentant sinner coming to Jesus for forgiveness. Matter of fact, he says that to her, that your sins are forgiven. And with John, what you have is a worshiping saint coming to anoint her Lord. Two totally separate motives and approaches to him. You also will notice that uh, if you read through Luke and carefully, you'll find out that this event in Simon the Pharisee's house happened before Jesus raised Jairus' daughter and before he fed the 5,000 on the hill. Okay, so and you're, if you remember, that feeding of the 5,000 on the hill by the Sea of Tiberias, which is really the Sea of Galilee, um, occurred around um, the time of the Passover. And so, and now Christ is here, and, and I guess if you read the whole context of uh, Luke, you definitely know that Jairus' daughter and the feeding of the 5,000 took place not in Judea, but in Galilee, three days away. And then if you read the previous context of Luke, you'll see that all of this happened in Galilee. So the woman coming and washing Jesus' feet in the household of Simon the Pharisee happened in Galilee. And here in John, we're clearly in Judea. We're in Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem. So the events are separated by geography, They're also separated by time. You remember, we've walked through the time of John pretty carefully trying to denote which Passover, how many Passovers, when did they occur, what's the sequence of events. And you remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went back to Capernaum, chapter 6, and this is where he says, you can't come to me unless the Lord God allows you to come to me. And he also says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that drives the, the masses from him. They say, this guy's crazy. We don't know what he's talking about. We're done. We're leaving him. And you remember for six months, Jesus is in Galilee, basically by himself with his disciples, not much ministry going on. That's when his brothers come to him and say, why don't you go to Jerusalem? Because at least there, maybe you can proclaim your message. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And then secretly he goes to Jerusalem. So all of that taking place in Galilee and in time reference is not the, <clears throat> the Passover that we're talking about here in John chapter 11 and 12 because that's the Passover that leads to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is his last Passover. This is the Passover in which he becomes the lamb. And the other one that happened near the time when he fed the 5,000 is a year previous. So these two events are separated by geography, by about three days' journey, and they're separated by time by about a year. So don't be confused, right? They're not the same. And Luke never says it's Mary who washes his feet, okay? It's not there. He doesn't name her. He just says a woman who was a sinner. And people assume that it's Mary Magdalene, but I'm not so sure that's right because Mary Magdalene is a woman who Jesus cast seven demons out of her. 
So I'm, I'm, you know, and you would think when she had the demons cast out of her, at that time she would become a true believer. So I don't even know if this is Mary Magdalene whom Luke is writing about. So there's all kinds of things we've been taught, right? And all kinds of things. People say, yeah, it's the same passage, and it's Mary Magdalene, and all these things. That's what I mean when I say, why do you believe what you believe? Is it because somebody who you love taught you? They could be wrong, right? And in this clear, clear understanding that these are not the same event, it's not, even, it's not the same woman, the whole meaning that's in the anointing of Jesus' feet is totally separate and different. And so um, maybe that's clear, right? That, and, and you can do the same thing, right? Maybe some of you did this past week. There is nothing magical about digging back into the scriptures, looking at the, the time frame references, the geography references, where are we at in the ministry of Christ? What's going on? What does the scripture actually say about this woman? Um, you know, Simon the, the Pharisee and Simon the leper could not, by Jewish law, be the same person, can't be the same house. And so there, there's no lack of clarity in the scripture. And you can dig back in and look at these details as well as I can. It's just a matter of doing the effort. And so I encourage you, do that. When you, when you got a question like that, just dig and see what it says. Go ahead. It's important to do this and be intellectually honest because those who are the enemy of Scripture will point to some of the things you just pointed out and say, see, Scripture's contradicting itself. Right. But in fact, it's probably talking about two different events. Yeah. yeah. And, and they say, no, it's the same event because there's so many similarities. And so it can't be different. Well, in fact, it is different and there's just similarities. And so uh, it's pretty clear. Go ahead. In that culture, the act of bowing at someone's feet would not necessarily have been a unique no. action. No, I think you would have done it to even to people who are your enemies, such as the Romans. You would have bowed at their feet. Um, so, and, and yeah. Now, but wiping someone's anointing their feet and wiping it with your hair probably didn't happen very often, right? I mean, not everybody carries around perfume so they can clean someone's feet and wipe it with their hair. Okay, because these women did this intentionally. Both of them um, took opportunity um, when they heard where Jesus was and what he was doing. And he's at both places, he's, he's getting ready to eat his meal. And so they're ceremonially uh, cleaning, cleansing him, and Mary is anointing him for death. And, so, and, and that's not by my account. That's what Jesus says about her, is leave her alone, that she has prepared me for death basically. So and we'll see that when we get over to chapter 12. So there's no question about those two anymore, right? Luke chapter 7, John chapter 12, not the same event. Separated by a year and um, probably three days journey. Geography. Okay. Now we'll go to where we really want to go, right? Into um, John chapter 11. This, um, you know, when I started just thinking about this passage, uh, I, I do try and do things in somewhat of a, you know, systematic order so it makes sense and the thing I didn't want to do was leave Lazarus in the tomb for as long as Jesus did and so in fact we're going we're gonna to beat that that he was in the tomb for four days um, in this account by Jesus he's going to be in the tomb for 14 days as we study this because we're not going to resurrect him today of course we're not going to resurrect him anyway we can't get that far I thought we could and so that's where I started preparing my lesson and uh, I wanted to give this explanation about the, the washing of Jesus' feet. And then there is just some things that rise out of this passage that you can't go around. And so we're not going to get there. So we're going to begin reading today down in chap- chapter 11 and verse 18 of John. <clears throat> John eleven eighteen. there the scripture reads, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha... Martha and Mary, to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even the one who comes into the world. 
When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were consoling her in the house, who were in the house and, and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Okay? So that's where we'll stop. Lazarus has to stay in the tomb for a while longer. Okay, so we're 1.72 miles or so thereabout, right, from Jerusalem. We're just outside the village where the people live. He's not yet in the village. And word comes to, um, you know, verse 19. Who is there with Mary to console her because her brother has died, not yesterday or the day before, but four days ago? So they're there for a long time, right? Who is it that's there? The Jews, the leadership of the Jews. So in some way, um, this family is known by the Pharisees, okay? And maybe it's because of Martha's good understanding that there is resurrection after death, which the Pharisees would have believed, but the Sadducees hated, right? And so maybe that's why you just don't know, but there's something about this family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And you notice always you get Martha and Mary. We say it Mary and Martha, right? But the scripture writes it Martha and Mary. Why? And because the prominent is always first. And Mary and Martha is clearly the prominent one in this family. Okay, because you notice that they hear that Jesus is coming and it's Martha, the leader of the household, who goes to greet him. Not Mary. And this is how it always is, right, in Scripture. It's always Martha who's serving, Martha who's fixing the meal, Martha who's looking after the details, and Mary who's sitting at Jesus' feet commendably, not always negatively. And so Martha goes out to meet Jesus, and it's in the outskirts of the village, which means what about this encounter? They're not in the village. They're in the road leading to the village. So what about this encounter? Is it public? It's public to whom? To whoever's around with Jesus, which would have been at this time the disciples and probably nobody else because the Jews wanted to kill him. I mean, we're only six or seven days before the actual sacrifice, right? I mean, we're, that's not correct. We're within a couple of uh, months, maybe weeks of the sacrifice. Okay, because after this, Jesus will go back away from Jerusalem for a little while longer. We don't know how long. And so we're, we're certainly in the proximity of when Christ is going to be crucified, and the Jews already want to kill him. Matter of fact, they have a stoning in their mind, right? Because he still called himself equal to God, and that's blasphemy, so he deserves to die. That's in the minds of these Jewish leaders who are in Mary and Martha's house. They're actually there, and, and commendably so, right? I mean, they're there four days after this man died. So they're, they're staying around. They're not just leaving this family to weep on their own. And so um, I'm, I'm a little surprised by that, to be honest with you, that the Jewish leaders are there, but they are. All right, so Martha, you know, maybe word came to the whole household, but Martha took the initiative and went out to meet Jesus. And the only people who are there, I believe, are the disciples and Jesus and Martha. So this is a somewhat private conversation that she has, because notice what she says to him, which I don't think she would have said in front of everybody. I just don't think she would have done that, because she says what to him? Right. If you had been here, meaning physically present, right, Lazarus would not have died. She says, my brother would not have died, right? Now, what's wrong with that statement? Based, yeah, based on what we've studied and we know out of John, what's wrong with that 
what she says. He didn't have to be there, right? How do you know that? You remember when he went back into Galilee, the nobleman had come to him and said, please come to my house because my son is sick. And Jesus said, you people always want signs, but nevertheless, your son is healed. And the nobleman, nobleman goes back to his house and cooperates that the healing happened at exactly the time that Jesus said it. So he believes in Christ and his whole house does because of this supernatural healing from 15, 20 miles away, maybe further. And so Christ does not have to be there. We have another example in Scripture, not in John. What's the other example when Christ did not go into the presence of the person? The Roman centurion who had a sick slave, okay, sent to Jesus and said, please come to my house and heal my slave. He's important to me and my family. And so Jesus is approaching, still in the distance, and the... um, The centurion sees him and sends his slaves and says, don't let that man come into my house because I'm not worthy for him to come into my house. So a right thought. And so he sends them out and, and tells them to tell him, just say the word and my slave will be healed because you don't need to go there because I have people underneath me and I send them wherever I want them to go and they go and do the work and you can do the same thing, just speak the word. And this is the guy who Christ commends, right? Never, never in all of Israel have I seen such faith. And he heals the, the centurion, sla- centurion slave from a distance far away still. And so two examples, and Martha doesn't know about those. Those happened in Galilee. Maybe word got to her, maybe it didn't. Martha does not have that information. So in all the miracles she's seen, Jesus is in the presence of the person who he heals hasn't spoken anything or done anything from a distance. No examples of that in Scripture where, other than those two, where Christ is a distance away and does something supernatural in healing somebody. So Martha doesn't have that information. But we have the privilege of knowing that, right? So that's part of what is wrong with Martha's statement. Um, What else? Go ahead. She assumes that he doesn't know that Lazarus is sick and dead. She does. And all right, now, now, what's wrong with that thought? If you had come here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. What's wrong with that thought? She doesn't know it would have been true. There's more. He waited on purpose for no good reason that we have in Scripture, right? Other than... He wanted to show the glory of God because that's what he said to his disciples, right? This is good for you that we waited so that you may believe. Not that they didn't believe so that he could solidify that belief. He could encourage it. He could cause it to grow and have more confidence beyond what it currently had. And so he actually says, this is a good thing that Lazarus is dead and has been dead for a while when I get there. This is good for you. And Martha does not know that, that Christ purposely, intentionally, did not go to heal him. Go ahead, Tom. Like right before the crucifixion, it was like he was strict in their faith by showing you know, Lazarus had been dead four days. Yeah. When Christ was crucified, they could see he had the power over death. Right. Ignoring the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? One miracle is greater than the, the, the raising of Lazarus. None. This is the crescendo of the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is of the, the, the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the peak. This is the pinnacle. There are none of the others that compare to this one. I mean, even when he raised Jairus' daughter, she'd only been sick a short time. Even when <coughs> he raised the daughter of the, the son of the woman from name, he was in the uh, funeral procession, so he had only been dead a short period of time. Not four days. And so this is significantly different than those. Okay? So this is the pinnacle. This is the greatest miracle of healing that Jesus works while he's on the, <clears throat> on the planet. Martha doesn't have the information that we have. <clears throat> so you see the great privilege we have as we study scripture. We have the other passages. We have um, the explanations. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have all this information. Somebody could get me some water. That'd really be good. <clears throat> say too much about Martha, I guess, or make judgments about her personality, but, you know, back in Luke, what, the 1040s, she's <laughs> accused Jesus of not caring. 
Yeah. She accused him of not caring, you know, because she's doing all this work and Mary's off or over there. You're right, Mary. And she's kind of, you get kind of a little bit, you know, about don't you care, you know, that I'm trying to do all this and my sister's over there not helping out. Now she's telling you, well, if you'd have been here, you know. Right, I mean, she does somewhat. <laughs> this is the leader of the household taking charge, is what it really is. And so <clears throat> Martha struggles that he's not there um, previously, but she doesn't have the information we do. So, um, excuse me a second. Thank you. Well, at any rate, we all have tendencies, I guess, and Christ <clears throat> addresses her with, you know, Passion. Well, and realize her brother's dead, you know, which would be a huge disappointment. And she believes in Jesus Christ and knows that if he would have wanted to, thank you anyway, knows that if he would have wanted to, he could have healed Lazarus. The, the, the real fact here is Jesus didn't want to. It was not his father's will, it was not his will to heal Lazarus in in a, um, a supernatural way, but a pre-death way. He didn't want to do that. Because he wants to, in the, really, in, we'll see as we go through it. Because you'll, you'll, there's a lot of emotion, even by Christ, in this passage. Okay, so we're down um, in verse, trying to find my place, 21 and then 22. And she says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give to you. What is she not asking for? What? Right. She is not asking Christ. Because it sounds like it, because we know the story. If you had never read the story before, you wouldn't necessarily make this conclusion. But because we know the story, it sounds like she's saying, and I know you can even raise him from the dead. She's not, she's not saying that. How do you know that is not what Martha is saying? Right. That's one of the things. What else? Yeah, in verse thirty-nine, right? When Christ says, "Let's get this stone out of the way," and then she says, um, "Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead for four days." So she doesn't think Christ is going to raise her brother, and she certainly wouldn't because of that. And then she didn't, therefore, ask him to do that. Because that's not in the game. That's not in her head. That's not what she's thinking. So what is she saying when she says to Christ, even now, I know that if you ask of God, he'll give it to you. What's she, what's she saying? She well, I mean, that's clear. She's already said that. You could have kept him from dying. What else? What is she saying to Christ? What's that? Yeah, we don't know exactly, right? I mean, because we get no explanation about this. But go ahead, Jerry. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll go all through that. Yeah, um, but you're right. I mean, she may think that Jesus doesn't know that he's been dead for four days, right? <clears throat> I think what she's saying, when she says, even now I've got to give you whatever you want, not necessarily asking for him to resurrect Lazarus, but this is Jesus Christ, the great teacher, and that she believed in him and that he could do things that nobody else could do. So maybe he could bring comfort, he could console the family in a way that none of these other people could do. I mean, he, he's close to this family. These are personal friends of his. And so I think <clears throat> just the fact that he's there and who is who, and is who he is, it, to Martha, is very significant, even though her brother's dead. And so I think that takes the edge of off what she says, when if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died, but I know that God will do whatever you ask him to. She's, she's backing up a little bit. She's saying, okay, I, I should, probably shouldn't have said that. You know? <laughs> and so we go on, and Christ tells her that Lazarus will rise again, in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And notice the good theology of Martha, right? Here is a Jew, pre-cross, been taught well, understands what the prophet said. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
right now. <clears throat> We've, if you've been in this class any time at all, or maybe a long time ago, you know that the term last day in Scripture is a very, very significant term, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, right? <clears throat> it's an eschatological term speaking of what happens at the end of this age. It speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It speaks of all the, um, those who have believed in Christ being resurrected from the dead, given supernatural bodies, glorified bodies, and then uh, Christ establishing a kingdom on this earth, seated in Jerusalem in a changed earth, all the mountains flattened, Jerusalem raised up, Jerusalem is the high point on the, pla- on the planet, and all the nations, um, at least in recognition of who he am, who he is parading before him, but greater than that, that the Jews reign with Christ in that eternal kingdom. Okay, and Mary, Martha knows this, and the Pharisees would have been applauding, right? That, hey, this woman knows about life after death, the Sadducees would have been sad. And so, <laughs> so <clears throat> Mary's, or Martha's, theology is pristine. She believes in the resurrection at the end of this age. If for no other reason, that's why you should believe in the resurrection at the end of this age. Because you notice Christ does not rebuke her for what she says. He knows it's accurate. Matter of fact, if you go over to Matthew 24, he gave 24, 25, 26 explanation of what she's talking about here. About the, the last day you know, again, just for extra credit, uh, you've been in here for a while. I believe the last day lasts at least a thousand plus a few days, at least that long. Okay, and that's the the statement out of John that uh, out of Peter that a day is as a thousand years, thousand years as a day in the context of eschatology, and. Um, the fact that if you just do a time study of what happens in Revelation all the way through through chapter 20, you'll see that it takes a little bit more than a thousand years because there's still still some things that have to take place. So it's a thousand years plus a little. Uh, probably not even a year, but nevertheless plus a little. That's the last day that Martha is referring to and Christ knows that's true. But he wants to teach her a greater truth, greater than the fact that all those who believe in the Messiah will be resurrected and reign with him uh, in the last day. She wants, he wants her to know more than that. And so he says to her, Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So what's Christ saying? What's the greater truth that he wants her to understand? I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, there is a resurrection at the last day. Absolutely accurate, good theology. But Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, meaning what? All All right. He holds the power. It would be part of it. What? Yeah, that he, even now, is, is still sovereign over all of that. Absolutely. What else? What else comes to your mind? I mean, you can go over to the first opening chapters of Revelation, and it's Jesus Christ who has what? The keys of life and death, right? It's not Satan who has the keys of life and death. It's Christ who has the keys of life and death. <clears throat> Meaning he decides when someone lives and when they die, both spiritually and physically. I am the resurrection and the life. What's he telling her? There is no resurrection and life outside of him. Absolutely. That apart from Jesus Christ, forget about the kingdom Forget about eternal life. Forget about any of that stuff because apart from Jesus Christ, null and void, that stuff doesn't exist. That's the truth that he wants her to understand. And even greater than that, if someone has eternal life, it's because he gave it to them. He's the source of life everlasting. 
Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> That's why in Revelation he stands there with the keys of life and death. It's all his. It doesn't belong to anybody else. He, he does. It's, it, he's, uh, he and his father also wrote the names in the book. You know, and we could talk about that in a lot of theology there, right? We won't go into all that. Maybe later, another day, when it's actually in the passage. Go ahead. You implied earlier that maybe she had the right theology. Mm-hmm. You know, the Pharisees were cheered. Yeah. Can this be Christ filling in that gap? Yep, expanding it. Yeah. Expanding it. That, you know, <clears throat> she believed who he was. She believed in Christ. None of that is in question. What Christ wants her to understand is the resurrection that she believes will happen is because and through him and for no other reason. There is nothing apart from Christ that causes resurrection. That is the so- He is the source. He's the means. He's the power. He's the reason. It's all consumed and wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And he wants her to know that truth. That's what he wants her to understand much higher, much greater than just, oh, I know we're going to be raised on the last day. Yeah, that's true, Mary, but Martha, but there's more. There's so much more. You understand who I am, but here's a greater truth. And notice, it's just like Christ, right? It's all about the crux in John is always about what? (laughs) That he's God, and what's the question? Do you believe? Everywhere in John, do you believe? And what does Christ ask Martha? Here's this overwhelming, glorious truth that you did not previously understand. Do you believe this? And I love this answer from Martha. I mean, this you talk about the right Christology, and Martha has it. I mean, she nails it in full scope here. Notice what she says to him, and we'll walk through each one of these statements. Martha said to him, I know, I'm sorry, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Down in verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even the one who comes into the world. All right, so she acknowledged, do you believe this, Martha? Absolutely. Why? Because you said it. And I believe that you are the Christ. <clears throat> Meaning what? Yep. You are the Christos. You are the anointed one. You are the one spoken of in scripture who is anointed by the Father and given the rule and the reign. I absolutely believe that. Okay? You are the Christ. And then she says that you are the Son of God. The way that Jesus often in John refers to himself, right? I am the Son of God. Meaning what? He is God. And that he, in essence, is God. He and God are of the same essence. There is no difference between Jesus Christ in the flesh and God eternal. They're one and the same. I am the Father are one. No one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Why? Because it's the same hand. We do things in cooperation and in complement to each other. Our wills are intertwined as we've looked at. I am God and the Father and I work together. Martha absolutely believes that. You are the Son of God. You are the Christos and then she says a little different one here at the end, right? What does she say that he is? You are he who comes into the world. What's she speaking of? The coming one would be a messianic title. She's referring to something very specific. She's referring to the prophet. Exactly right. And I'll show you this in John if I can find my notes. What verse are we in? 26? 27? Thank you. Move back in John 16. No, that's not right. 6, 14. 
John 6, 14. This is when he feeds the 5,000, right? This is when they want to make him their king because they recognize what's going on here. 6.14, therefore, when the people saw the sign, the sign is what? All the food that was left over, right? In the previous verse, saw the sign which he had performed. They said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world by the prophecy of whom? Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. God will raise up a prophet from among the people like me, was Moses' prophecy. This is, this, and the people understood this. The Pharisees taught this. It's well understood that there's one coming who has not come because all the way through the Old Testament scripture, never anybody identified as the prophet who Moses said would rise up from among the people. That identification never given to anybody. So they were still expecting the prophet. And and Martha says, and you are the one who Moses prophesied about. She nails it. Her Christology is perfect. He is the prophet. He is the Christos, and he is God in the flesh. Yeah. Yep, John the Baptist even asked him, right? Now, you wonder about that, right? Because John the Baptist is the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God. But then later, when he's about to be killed, you always want to make sure, right? (laughs) So that's when he sends his messengers back. And Christ confirms it by saying the you know the uh, dead rise and the uh, those yeah blind see and those who can't walk do, and so um, <clears throat> that was the same in um, in John one when the yep. asked yep. what they were referring to. That's right. Yeah, way back in John one when they said, well, if you're not these guys, are you the prophet? And he says, no. I'm one in crying in the wilderness, you know, the one they missed the, in, the, in the prophecies. Go ahead, David. Where was it in Deuteronomy? 1815. That's correct, isn't it? I know some of you are checking, so it's always good. I never rebuke someone who checks to make sure that I'm right because I'm often not right, okay? I understand that, so it's a good thing. Okay, so you see the stuff that just rises out of this passage, right? There's more. 28 through 30. I'm in the wrong chapter. Let me catch up with you. 28 through 30. When she had said this, she went away, and she tells Mary something that we don't see Christ say, which is what? The teacher is calling for you. This is why he waited outside of the city. Because he did not want to talk to them publicly. He wanted to comfort them first privately before he went and did public ministry. I mean, notice where he is when Mary comes to him. Mary gets up. And when she heard this in verse 29, she got up quickly and coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. So Christ is waiting. Martha, go get Mary and send her to me. I want to talk to her also. The problem here is that the crowd follows Mary. So Christ doesn't have the opportunity to speak to her privately. Okay, and this is the younger, uh, more tender, um, not head of the household, um, submissive one. She runs and falls at Jesus' feet, as you said. You know, she recognizes who he is. She needs comfort. She's still brokenhearted that her brother has died. <clears throat> Even says she's weeping. And not only she is weeping, <clears throat> and this you just kind of wonder about, right? The Jews are weeping with her. So they're, you know, I don't know if, you know, when your brother weeps and you weep, you know, you're, you go and you just, you're just there with them. And that's all, that's about all you can do. That's what's going on here. And commendably, 
to these Pharisees, um, they are trying to comfort her in any way <clears throat> that they can. Now, this kind of surprises me. Um, then the Jews who were, verse 31, were with her in her house and consoling her. They go out. Therefore, when Mary came to Jesus in verse 32, she saw him and fell at his feet and says the exact same thing that Martha said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. <clears throat> okay? The, the sisters have been talking about this, right? I mean, this was on their mind. This is why they sent for him. And she doesn't have the same information that Martha doesn't have. They just don't know what's going on. And they're brokenhearted. So we don't really um, scold them or don't understand what's going on. I think we understand perfectly what's going on. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, this to me is interesting because it says something about Jesus Christ, especially in his earthly ministry. So here's Jesus Christ, this woman at his feet, crying. Here's the crowd, and many of them are weeping. And Jesus sees this, and he's deeply moved and troubled. I think, what's the ESV say? even goes stronger than greatly troubled, right? ESV says he's moved, deeply moved, and greatly troubled. Now, this is Jesus Christ. Does he all of a sudden think that, well, maybe I can't raise Lazarus from the dead? Is that what's going on here? Is that why he's troubled? No, clearly not, right? Yeah, what's going on, Randy? Okay, meaning, meaning what? Relationships matter. Relationships matter. I think that's a small part of it, to be honest with you. Yeah, but I mean, the people matter that, that he was moved by the fact that she had such a love for her brother. Right. And, and that love for family, that whole thing is, a, is built into us in a human way that God has put into us. Right. I think it's greater than that. I think... It shows he had a tender heart. I think it's greater than that. When you, look at when you look at God's will and what God's purposes are and the fact that in the, in the course of that purpose unfolding, uh, people hurt, get hurt along the way, and people are uh, suffering because of sin. And there's And that's the perspective Christ would have had, right? that we're all here weeping, and he will be very shortly, because of what? <clears throat> because of the fallenness of the humanity, right? And that's what he would have seen, I believe. He always has this higher perspective than anybody else. And he sees in living color here the results of sin and what it's caused. Go ahead. First Corinthians 15 says this thing of death is sin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the promised redeemer from Genesis chapter 3 to do away with sin. So I think at this point, the, the fulcrum of his mission is pointed out. This is, this is what he's come to redeem mankind from. Exactly. Yep, and that's what he sees. That's what's in his mind. Because in seven days, eight, nine days, he's going to overcome all of this permanently. And here, no, sorry, it's months away. Um, In John, it's only that far away, but it's really months away that he's going to overcome it permanently. And here, in a few minutes, temporarily, he's going to overcome it. Go ahead. I think it just shows the heart of God for his people. Yeah. Loves us. And that he is grieved over our sin. He's grieved over when we hurt. That's right. I just think about when it says he takes no joy in the destruction of the wicked. I mean, he he loves us and he loved them and he felt their 
pain, I think. I mean, I, he does. I, I absolutely agree. When he also, like, went in Palm Sunday, you know, he wanted to take his brood. He, he knew. He weeps over Jerusalem. Yeah, he loved them, but they, you know, turned from him. Yep. Look over at First John, <clears throat> the same author, right? Maybe a couple of years later, a few years later, John pins First John. <clears throat> and down in um, this, I mean, verse, chapter two, verse one, is really what I want us to understand. That, and Christ understands this when He's standing there <clears throat> with these people. He says, "My children, I'm writing." these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. He's standing there with these people who are weeping with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. That should provide comfort to you. That's what Jesus Christ, as part of the ministry of the Spirit and the Word and of Jesus Christ going on today that is we sin we're broken hearted these people are broken hearted Christ the advocate is there to help overcome these results that's why he came he's he's there to help us and to comfort us the the writer of Hebrews understood this look over at Hebrews chapter 4 he understood this well in Hebrews chapter 4, speaking of Jesus Christ in his priestly role, which we'll get to in John, um, and not too much further, in John four fourteen through 16, these words are given for our comfort. <clears throat> John four fourteen. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in the time of need. This is who Jesus Christ is. He understands what you're going through. He probably understands it better than we even understand it. And he goes before the Father as our advocate that our sins may not be held before and in front of us because he was the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of judgment of God. And Christ understands all of this. You know, his theology is complete when he's standing here. He understands all that's going on and he understands the brokenness of these people. He even in the next verse, right, the shortest verse in scripture, weeps because he feels the same thing they feel. And Jesus Christ, while raised from the dead and with the Father sitting in glory, still understands our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who doesn't sympathize with our condition. He does. He does. And you ought to rely on him because he will provide comfort that no one else can. You know, the amazing thing about the humanity of Jesus Christ to me in Scripture is the next thing that the writer of Hebrews writes down in chapter 5. You know, did Jesus really, really have to go through the things that we as, as humans have to go through? Hebrews 5, verse 7 in the days of his flesh, when he was a human, right? He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, this is outrageous, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Although he was God in the flesh, he still learned obedience And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God 
as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's who Jesus Christ is. This is a greater truth than just he was there and he was weeping with the people because they were weeping. No, he understood the bigger picture. He understood the brokenness of humanity, the fallenness of humanity, the reasons they were suffering because of the death of Lazarus. He saw the bigger picture. And so in that view, he's there. He's brokenhearted with them. He weeps with them when he gets to the tomb. And, you know, let me say something now. He, if Jesus Christ ever appeared vulnerable to the Jewish leaders, here it is. Because here he is, and his friend is dead. The women have said what they would say, which is, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died, so why weren't you here? They would be accusing him. And look at him, just like a regular human, not God, he's weeping also. Now, why do I say that's their perspective? Because of what they say. Look at what they say in verse 37. Jesus goes to the tomb. He's weeping. And look at what these guys say back over in John 11. Is it 37? Did I get it right? Yeah, 1137. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Yeah, you may have opened the eyes of that blind guy, but you couldn't keep this one from dying. And look at you, you're broken and weeping just like these women are. That's what they were saying. Now, Jesus is weeping and his appearance of vulnerability is the perfect. It's not why he did it. He's truly mourning with them. It's the perfect setup for what he does next. Because the Jews think they have something. They don't. They think they do. And you'll see, and we'll look at this next week, when they said that, Jesus was deeply moved, not in the same way as previously. Not in the same way as previously. He knew what he was going to do. He's like, okay, stand back. You think I couldn't keep him from dying? Let me show you a greater truth. That's what he's getting ready to do. That's what, how he was moved. You get the picture, right? He's weeping with them, and now he's going to do something about it. <clears throat> this is all in the plan and purpose of God. This is the pinnacle of the healing ministry. There's no greater miracle than this one in Jesus' relationship to humans. David, I think the preeminence of God's purpose in this is, comes out so clearly. Yeah. They're complaining that he wasn't there, and, and yet he didn't. He wasn't there because it wasn't the purpose of God for him to be there. Yep. He, he was delaying because the will of God is for him to delay, and he he is showing us that our suffering is secondary to the purposes of God. That's right. That the troubles that we have are secondary to that, and that we need to always be willing to submit our heartache, our struggles, our difficulties. And when you go through those, he understands. He he gets the picture. He understands what you're going through. Back way over there. Somebody had a hand up? Maybe not. Randy? I was going to say that, you know, this is another pictorial, pictorial let's say, you know, nothing that we haven't already said, but it's just interesting, you know, that this is another indication <coughs> of his... Uh, triumph over death. Yeah. I mean, with the literal of Lazarus, so it's a pictorial of what he's going to do mm-hmm. when when God resurrects. His ministry crescendos, you know, up to this point, and then ultimately with the resurrection of himself, <clears throat> which is the greatest miracle, right? You kill this temple, I'll raise it in three days. He said. Go ahead. Uh, Martha and Mary's comments also reveal a lot about us when we're going through trials. <coughs> They're basically questioning God's purposes, his path, I mean, that he has for their life. If you had done this, or, or if such and such had happened, you know, how many times do we do that? Yeah. But we know that his purpose is better than 
you know, um, I remember when Stuart Scott said that if, if we think if we could have changed the past, things would be better, but they wouldn't, it'd be worse. But if you look at Romans, you know, what Romans 8 says, that God, you know, sovereignly causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Right, right. God really know what he's doing. In our arrogance. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's what it really comes down to. I could have done this better. You can't. You can't. Go ahead. As God's creation, we exist in time. Yeah, he doesn't. He does He created time. And so... This, For our help. <laughs> this idea that, you know, his delay, where, you know, we have this one-dimensional view of time and, and of course death is is permanent and uh, just that's not the way he thinks yeah he's outside of all of that <clears throat> see there's a lot in this passage right now you know why I didn't get to the resurrection so Lazarus will stay in the grave until Lord willing next week when we read through the resurrection yeah he will <clears throat> thanks for your time <laughs>